Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that she was, he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, with the hair, hair, hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself that this man were a prophet. He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he, he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. You know, we're going through this series, and we're looking at instances in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus sits down and he has a meal. And one of the reasons why this is so important is because every time in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus has a meal, uh, there's an important teaching that accompanies it, and it tells us a lot about who Jesus is and his purpose for why he, he came here to the earth. Now, last week what we learned about is that Jesus, his mission and his purpose, uh, we learned a little bit about it because he was somebody who ate with tax collectors. And the reason that he came is he came to call sinners to repentance. He came uh, not for the righteous, but he came for sinners. He came for the sick, for the broken, for the despised. He came to heal that which is broken. That's why he came. And his arrival signals this new age, and it requires this completely different way of thinking, this paradigm shift in order to see what God's plan uh, of redemption was. And for some people, like the Pharisees, this is a very difficult paradigm shift to make, which is why they never really understand Jesus and uh, who he is and why he came. Today, we're going to look at a meal uh, that Jesus has at the invitation of a Pharisee named Simon. And, you know, I think this teaching is directed towards him, but the real power of the story and the power of the scene is centered around this unnamed woman. Uh, you see, as Jesus, he reclines at table with Simon the Pharisee. You have this woman, and she doesn't even have a name. She enters the room, and she has this alabaster flask of ointment. And uh, we can say, who is this woman? And the passage describes this woman as a woman of the city, which is kind of, I think, a euphemism uh, for somebody who is uh, most likely a prostitute, uh, which is what Bible scholars will say. Uh, she's labeled as, quote-unquote, a sinner. And uh, she comes to uh, this meal, and she uh, does something pretty amazing when she encounters Jesus. Now, if you think about it, the, the nature of uh, prostitutes, even in our world today, uh, I don't think anybody becomes a prostitute because uh, they want to. Uh, in other words, they usually get there because maybe somebody gains control or power over them and forces them into it. Or uh, a lot of times maybe they're just, they find themselves in a very uh, desperate situation in need of money, and this is the only way that they can see uh, them surviving. Uh, if you think about it, like most prostitutes are, are not like, you know, Julia Roberts and pretty women. Uh, 
but there are there are going to be uh, very emotionally broken people. Uh, I remember hearing a story about how a missionary in, in South Korea, you know, he went and he tried to share the gospel with uh, the prostitutes in South Korea, and uh, one of the difficulties that he encountered was they they just didn't believe it. Uh, they, they, it's not that they didn't believe that God wasn't real. It's not even that they couldn't believe that Jesus died on a cross or rose from the dead. They just couldn't believe that God could love somebody like them. They just had a hard time believing it. And they thought they were just too broken. Uh, they thought they've done too many things that were bad and wrong, and their sense of worth was just so shattered, they actually came to a point where they found it impossible to believe that God could love them. Now, can you imagine what it would be like to kind of be in those shoes, to, to have been so exploited and, and discarded and rejected so many times that you get to a place where you can't even believe uh, God loves you, let alone maybe any other human being? And I think that's the kind of brokenness that probably most of us don't know or have never experienced. But you look at this passage, look how she is identified here. She's identified as a sinner. And if you are a Christian believer, you know, right from an intellectual standpoint, uh, you know, everybody's a sinner. We're all sinners. But that's not how the word is being used here. Sinner is not something that describes her spiritual condition here, but sinner is an identity that is ascribed to her. In other words, when people looked at this woman, they looked at her primarily through the lens of her sin. And when, when that's how people view you and that's when, how people understand you, you feel rejected all the time. Uh, you know, I hear uh, if you ever have uh, a friend or somebody that you know who uh, is maybe suffering from illness, like let's say cancer, uh, I hear a lot of times uh, cancer patients, they don't like it when um, people treat them differently because they have cancer. And one of the reasons is because uh, they cease to be who they were before, but now people begin to see them through the identity of their cancer. So it's like, it's not this my, the friend that I had, but uh, it's the, the cancer, the person with cancer. And uh, that tends to, people tend to view them a little bit differently, and, and they don't like it. They just want to kind of be treated as they were before. And I, I think it's a little bit of, of the same idea here when uh, this woman, she is uh, primarily being seen through the lens of, of her sin. It's kind of like if people didn't view you as who you were, people didn't view you as how they knew you, people didn't even view you through your vocation, but people view you as the addict, or people view you as the greedy one, or people view you as the adulterer or the thief. They're primarily viewing you through the lens of your sin, and when you are viewed in that way, when your sin becomes your very identity, you feel rejected all the time. Now, what would it feel like to walk through life like that, I think it would be pretty difficult and pretty hard. Uh, I think just emotionally you, you become very broken and you have a very low sense of self, self-worth. And that's what this woman experienced as she walked through life as quote-unquote the sinner. But then she hears a man named Jesus and she hears all the things that he's done. She hears that how he will be willing to touch lepers and how he is willing to eat with tax collectors. He hears how he calls himself a friend of sinners. She hears about his power. She hears about his ministry. And she hears that this man is at Simon's house reclining. And she says to herself, I just have to see him. I have to see him. Now you may think it's, it's pretty strange that she could just freely walk into somebody's house but, you know, in those days, homes weren't necessarily seen as these private places. You know, in, in our culture, we have locks on our doors. We have doormen to prevent strangers just from walking in. 
But in the ancient world, doors were oftentimes left open, so people would kind of go in and out. And especially if there was a banquet or some kind of meal, a lot of times this is where important discussions would take place, and so people would kind of just come by and watch the discussions and eavesdrop. So it wouldn't have been unusual for a woman like this just to come in. But you know what would have been a very unusual is actually what she does next here. Uh, if you've ever seen that, that famous painting of uh, The Last Supper that Leonardo da Vinci painted, uh, they're, they're all sitting at this table, they all have chairs, and you know they're all eating a meal. But in reality, that's not what a meal looked like in the ancient world. Rather, everybody would, they would kind of be like lying down on maybe this sofa or this couch or some cushions, and uh, their, their head would be towards the table, and I guess they would kind of have like their hand on their head, holding their head up, they would have discussion, but their feet would be pointed away from the table. And uh, if you think about it, that makes a lot of sense because if you're walking in sandals all the time, your feet are probably really smelly and really dirty, and you don't want it pointed towards the table, uh, and nobody wants to see that. So you have your feet kind of pointed away, and uh, you're, you're talking. And from, uh, you know, <clears throat> as, as this woman comes, uh, you know, Jesus' feet is probably pointed away from the table, and she comes in, and she stands behind his feet, and she begins to weep. Right? She begins to weep and weep, and she's weeping so much that her tear, tears begin to wet his feet. And then she begins to take her hair down and she begins to wipe his feet as she anoints his feet with this ointment of, uh, in an alabaster flask. There's two things I think that's pretty shocking about this scene. The first thing that's shocking is she pours out this ointment from an alabaster flask. Uh, this is probably something that's really expensive. Some commentators guess that this is probably a year's worth of wages. Uh, this is something that was very valuable to her. And not only that, if, if it were some kind of perfume, it probably would have been uh, very valuable in terms of just her, her livelihood. And when she pours out this ointment on Jesus' feet, uh, she's giving up a lot. It's this great act of devotion. And she's saying, Jesus, uh, this is everything I have. This is, this is valuable to me, and I want to pour it. I want to use it for you. Second, what would have been shocking here is uh, she takes her hair. Right? She uncovers her hair, and she begins to wipe his feet. Uh, you know, in, in the ancient world, and you see it in some cultures now, uh, women cover their hair, and uh, to reveal your hair was interpreted as a sexually promiscuous act. And so if you let your hair down, if you show your hair, it would be have been interpreted in a very scandalous way. And what this woman does is she lets her hair down, and she begins to wash Jesus' feet and wipe his feet with it. And Simon, he, he sees this woman, because he sees this woman through the lens of her sin, he doesn't see this as a great act of devotion, but he sees this as some kind of sexual advance towards Jesus. And so he says to himself, doesn't Jesus know what's going on, right? If this man were really a prophet, he would know what sort of woman is touching him. And that's what leads to this parable that Jesus tells. That's parable, very short, very simple. I think we can uh, even read it in its entirety, but the lesson is important. The parable goes like this. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? The parable is basically presenting two ways of approaching Jesus, two ways of experiencing forgiveness, two ways of responding to Jesus. The money lender who forgives both debts in this passage is kind of analogous to Jesus, who is the one who forgives sin. But depending on how you understand your debt will basically determine how you approach Jesus and how you experience the forgiveness that he offers. Look here. Both debtors, they owe money. One person owes 500 denarii and the other person owes 50. 
Uh, I know that's a little bit of a different form of currency than we're used to. So let's just say one person owes $10,000 and the other person owes $100,000. One person has a debt and the other person has a debt that is about 10 times as large. And now what really differentiates both people? I think to put it simply, one person owes more than the other, but how significant is that differential? It's only significant if you assume something, if you assume that you have the ability to pay this debt. If both people don't have the ability to pay, to pay the debt, then it, it doesn't really matter how much you owe, right? Because you can't pay it anyway, and the money lender can still come after you. You see, the problem with Simon the Pharisee here is that when he compares himself to the woman, he doesn't think he's that bad. He doesn't think he's that bad. He's a Pharisee, and, and contrary to certain characters of Pharisees, you know, I think he was probably aware that he wasn't a perfect person. He was probably aware that he committed sin. That's why Jewish people had Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That's the day where you atone for the guilt of your sin. It's an important day because they knew that they were guilty of sin and that sin needed to be atoned for. You see, the problem isn't that Simon didn't understand that he had sins that needed to be forgiven, but the problem he had was he didn't think his sin was as bad as other people like this woman. He lived this nice, respectable life. Everything looked good from the outside. He went to synagogue. He observed Jewish holidays. His life was generally free from scandal. But he assumed he had the ability to pay his debt, however small it was compared to this woman. And that assumption is what makes all the difference. You know what one of the biggest obstacles is to becoming a devoted follower of Jesus, to be even becoming a Christian? One of the biggest obstacles is this very assumption. And I think both religious people and non-religious people make that assumption and have to overcome it. Uh, if you grew up in, a, in, in the church, if you grew up as a Christian, you may actually think, you know, I'm a pretty good person because I have, I've lived this good moral life according to Christianity standards. I, I go to church. I read the Bible. Uh, there's no serious scandals in my life. I think I'm a pretty good person. And at that point, you'll find yourself begin to uh, lose this sense of uh, desperate need for Jesus. And when that happens, your devotion has limits. Your sacrifice has limits. Your obedience has limits. You only give what you think is required of you rather than giving out of your love. And you may even find yourself at one point starting to have these expectations of God. And you may say, uh, if you go ever go through suffering, God, why are you letting me go through this? I've been faithful to you. I don't deserve this. I should have a better life than the one you gave me. You may even find yourself getting angry at God in those moments. And you ask yourself, why? I think because deep down in your heart at the root level, you don't think your debt is all that large. If uh, you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer, um, there's a good chance that you probably like Jesus. Uh, you like what he taught uh, because he taught things about loving neighbor and he taught things about helping the poor, right? Uh, you may think you're a pretty good person too, especially when you compare yourself to others and you say, look, I'm not a murderer, I'm not a pedophile, I care about social justice, and I care about accepting everybody. Look, I know I'm not perfect either, but I think I'm better than most people. Uh, I think the good that I do in life outweighs the bad things I do in life. So, yeah, I think I'm a pretty good person. And the ironic thing is you actually have the same issue as maybe the religious person or the same issue as Simon the Pharisee in that you misunderstand the true nature of your debt and you misunderstand the true nature of your need. If you care more about Jesus' teaching uh, rather than Jesus himself, uh, it may be because you have the ability or you assume you have the ability to pay your debt. 
And when you assume you have the ability to pay your debt, you don't really understand uh, that you need Jesus uh, outside of his teaching as well. But what if you have absolutely no way to pay your debt, regardless of how much you owe? Does it really matter if you owe $10,000 or $100,000? Because either way, the money lender comes after you, right? The creditor comes after you. You still suffer the consequences of not being able to pay that debt. And then at that point, then you realize, you know what I need? I need forgiveness. I need somebody to forgive this debt that I have. It's kind of like uh, being thrown into the, the deep ocean without having the ability to swim. Does it really matter if you can hold your breath longer than the next person? Yeah, maybe you last longer, but at the end of the day, you, you drown, right? See, in the grand scheme of things, and in the same manner, whether your debt is small or whether your debt is large, if you can't pay it, it doesn't really matter. You still need someone to forgive that debt. If you're in the ocean and you can't swim, it doesn't matter how long you can hold your breath, you still need somebody to rescue you. But I think this is oftentimes what we do in our life when we think we're fine and we, we think we're a pretty good person. It's like saying, you know, we're, we're holding our breath in, in the ocean and a Coast Guard comes and a uh, Coast Guard says, hey, I'll rescue you, I'll come and save you. And you go, no, I'm fine, right? I, I'm fine in the ocean. I'm going to hold my breath and eventually uh, I'll figure out how to swim and I'll eventually figure out how I can save myself. And that's, that's kind of Simon's problem right here. And that's how Simon approaches Jesus. And that's why he approaches Jesus in the way that he does. You see, although there may be a certain level of respect for Jesus as a teacher, you'll notice there is no love, there is no devotion. His relationship with Jesus is very distant and impersonal. He cares more about what Jesus has to teach rather than Jesus the teacher himself. And Jesus calls him out for it in verse 44. He says, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. You gave me no kiss. You did not anoint my head with oil. Jesus is saying, when I came over, all right, maybe you showed me some respect as a teacher, as a rabbi, but you did not show me any kind of love or any kind of devotion. Let's think about our lives for a moment. Maybe some of us have that problem as well, right? Um, we're called to do more than simply respect Jesus as a teacher. We're, we're called to love him. We're called to follow him. We're called to actually devote our entire lives to him. And some of us, we struggle with that. Maybe for some of us, we haven't uh, really shown any kind of serious or deep devotion to Jesus in a while. Maybe we've never done it. And uh, it, it takes more than just to simply say, you know, I believe in Jesus or intellectually I, I understand the gospel. It shows more than, you need more than that to show this deep kind of devotion that we see in this woman. In order to show that kind of devotion, we, we actually have to recognize Jesus' beauty. His beauty. If you are the pragmatic type, you may not realize the supreme importance of beauty and beautiful things. But if you want to inspire any kind of deep devotion, I think you have to have beauty. One of the unique things about what Steve Jobs brought when he was at Apple was he, care about, he cared about the beauty of his products, right? Uh, he wasn't just trying to make the most functional computers or the most functional devices, but he was trying to create art. He was trying to create something beautiful. He saw himself as an artist. Beauty mattered to him. And I think that's why... I don't know about now, but at least back then, I think that's why there was almost this religious-like devotion to Apple as a company and to Apple products 
especially when you can't compare it to other companies, because there was beauty there, and they were touched by that beauty. Beauty matters, and I think it matters when it comes to Christian devotion. Beauty matters when, uh, if you see the Christian life basically as drudgery, and I have to do this, and I have to do that, I have to listen to this, I have to listen to that. It's not. There's no inspiration. There's no devotion. They're just doing and doing. There's no enjoying and experiencing. How do you see and experience the beauty of Christ? I think it starts with experiencing the beauty and joy that comes from being forgiven. From being forgiven. And how do you experience the joy of forgiveness? Well, you don't do it by comparing yourself to the person next to you and comparing the size of your debt to the size of another person's debt, but rather... It happens when you yourself recognize your deep need. When you recognize that you are in the ocean, and there might be other people around you in the ocean as well. But when the Coast Guard comes and you say, save me, save me, or else I'm going to die, and you, you get on that boat, and you are saved. And you say, Coast Guard, what can I do for you? Thank you so much for saving me. You see, if you are the type that, if you have it all together, or maybe you don't have it all together, but you think you can get it together through your talent, through your hard work, you're still in that ocean. You're still holding your breath. You're still thinking that eventually you'll learn how to swim and save yourself. If that's you, hear this. The pattern that we see here is Jesus calls the sick, the broken, the needy, the sinner. Why? Because of all people, they know, they know that they need him. You know, think about this. What, what is the woman doing when she is wiping Jesus' feet? She's just weeping so much. She's weeping so much that she can actually form enough tears to get Jesus' feet wet enough to be able to wipe them. This woman here, she understands her need. This woman here, she, she is a woman who weeps when the Coast Guard comes to rescue her from the ocean. This is a woman who weeps because the money lender has forgiven her debt. What sets her apart from somebody like Simon is not necessarily her, her act of devotion or what she's doing, but I think what sets her apart from Simon is she has experienced something profound. She has experienced deep forgiveness, and therefore she loves much. That's what Jesus says in verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. The joy of experiencing forgiveness. Now, canceling a debt, it always means there's a cost. Even in economic terms, uh, whenever a debt is created, there's always a cost. It's not like the money lender could just snap his fingers and say, debt, disappear, you're gone. But the assumption is if the money lender is going to cancel the debt, then the money lender is the one who absorbed the cost of that debt, right? During the financial crisis, when the government bailed out some of the, the big companies and the big banks, even then, they didn't just snap their finger and they say, goodbye, debt, disappear. Somebody had to pay for it. Unfortunately, it's the taxpayers, but somebody had to pay for it. Whenever a debt is created, it doesn't just go away. 
but there's a cost. Someone's got to pay. That's why debt, I think, is a very appropriate way to understand the dynamics of sin and forgiveness. You know, some people ask, why couldn't God just kind of snap his fingers and forgive us without sending Jesus to the cross? It's the very same reason why the moneylender can't make debt disappear. Sin created a debt, and it has to be paid. It has to be paid. Either we pay it with our lives, with our souls, or Jesus pays it with his life. You see what the gospel says? The gospel says this, that Jesus, he paid it all. He took the hit. He paid our debt with his life. And he had enough in the bank to pay for all of our sin because he was God himself in the flesh. He took everything in order to pay the debt of all of our sins and required him to die upon a cross. It required him to be cut off from fellowship with his father. It required him to pay this enormous debt that we incurred and that we created. You know, if we know the following, point one, our sin created a debt. Point two, we need, we need our debt to be forgiven. And point three, Jesus forgave our debt and it required him to die upon a cross. If those three things are things that we actually understand and believe and feel, how do we not show devotion like this woman showed devotion? Maybe our lives are the ones that don't make sense. Maybe this woman's life makes perfect sense in God's eyes. How do we not respond like this woman? How do we not come to Jesus with tears, weeping, with joy, because we've been forgiven? How do we not give all that we have, all that is valuable to us, our own alabaster flasks of ointment in devotion to Jesus? How do we not do that? Well, it probably means there's a disconnect there with one of these points. You know, friends, the truth of the matter is we, we are needy. We're very needy. We have a debt, and it doesn't matter where our debt stands in comparison to others. It needs to be forgiven. Jesus, he, he offers it to us, but we, we have to come to him and receive it. Uh, we have to allow him to come and to rescue us from the bottom of the ocean and resurrect us to new life. And in order to do that, we, we have to get rid of any kind of notion that we're good enough to save ourselves, that we're good enough to learn to swim, that we're good enough to uh, just work really hard and make enough money so that we can pay that debt back to the moneylender. That has to die within us. Or else there's, there's not going to be any joy of forgiveness. <laughs> Jesus will just be some pragmatic, uh, useful uh, teacher that we learn a lot of things from. Uh, but there's not going to be devotion. We're not going to forget or not care what anybody else thinks when we go into this house and when we do these really weird things, maybe even shameful things when we're pouring our, our hearts out and crying, taking our hair down and washing feet, until we experience forgiveness, that will never make sense to us. You know, today we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. And as we do, I want to give you some time to think 
about what we're doing as we come to this table. This is a meal too, friends. This is a meal too. You know who Jesus invites? The broken and the needy and the sinner. Jesus invites the adulterer, the thief, the tax collector. You know who's excluded from this meal, though? The self-righteous Pharisee. Look in your hearts. If Simon characterizes your heart more than this woman, you had to pray to God and ask him to break that. Maybe even on your own, maybe just refrain from partaking today and say, a heart like Simon is not the direction that I should be going in. But if this woman, if this heart, if her heart, if her actions, if her devotion, if her tears are what you want and long for and need, if that forgiveness is something that you want and need, come to the table because Christ invites you. Let me give you a minute to pray as we uh, prepare to come to the table today.